You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to Land of Legacy Podcast. Uh, you've got Adam here. Matt's here. And uh, we're doing things a little bit differently as, as we'll probably have more and more of this. So if you don't like it, you better chime in quick. Or And so we'll have to ch- uh, ch- rearrange the way we're doing it. But since Matt is official, you've officially moved. Officially moved in, yes. Earlier this week, uh, my wife and I, we changed our residency to a location that will be undisclosed in the middle of nowhere. Um, but still within Southern Missouri and, um, it is fantastic. I'm actually outside right now. It's just so quiet, peaceful. Um, but yeah, we're enjoying, um, that peace and serenity on what we talked about, I guess a week or a week uh, or two weeks ago. Um, the property that we recently purchased. So lots of work, lots of transition. And this is one of the transitions is just recording, um, through zoom, but there'll still be times when, Sunday afternoons, we come over after church and sit down together and we'll be in person. Or hopefully when you and your wife move down this way too, um, we'll have more in-person conversations through podcasts. But right now, this is our temporary fix. Yeah, well, that all depends on how how much you guys like it. Quicker I can get there. So you better be pumping it up and how amazing it is so I can sell it to the wife and say, hey, we're missing out. We need to get down there. I'll say this. I've been pleasantly surprised, but um, Emily has really warmed up to it. I mean, she's talking it up and even put out a few uh, tomato plants, pepper plants, stuff like that in the garden. She got her, like, I'm just going to (laughs) sound, you'll be surprised. Everyone else will be like, really? I mean, she got her hands in the dirt and, you know, doing it. Like, yeah, so um, I've, I have high expectations. So yeah, you guys need to come down and and visit soon and and see what it's all about. Yeah, well, I certainly will. Um, So uh, this is one of the, you know, the guys will hear uh, over on the other podcast, guys and gals, I should say, will hear on the other podcast, my interview with Sean and Michael from Heartland Bowhunter through Zoom. Um, These whole Zoom meetings is new to us from the standpoint of typically we just plug them right in the phone, record phone recordings and uh, our phone conversations and go from there. But the Zoom is working well so far, we think. And so we'll continue using it. Um, and I think it'll hopefully answer uh, some of the ability to bring in Kyle and Frank more often, Chad more often from from afar, rather than just one of them at a time. We might even be able to do full on, you know, roundtable discussions with the whole gang. 
which I think always, you know, they, everyone brings a different high level points, I think, to these broad conversations of habitat and land management. And so, yeah, do, doing this, it's like some, some people are probably like, you guys are just finding out Zoom. No, we are on Zoom calls a lot, other types of interviews. It's just kind of for us in our podcast format. But it, it is exciting because they all bring in a lot of different perspectives. And, and Frank and Kyle and, and Chad are all very experienced in their own ways. I mean, you think of the 30 plus years of uh, experience that they've gotten and Chad comes in with a, a very specific forestry background. Um, we can get a lot accomplished. Uh, we might have to extend the hour long podcast into an hour and a half if we're doing some round tables as yeah. Chad can get. But <laughs> Well, there's a reason for the fact that we don't have a lot of guests on um, or we have a lot of round tables because you and I can fill up an hour very quickly, just us. <laughs> And you throw another person in there. I'm like, I didn't even get to say what I wanted to say. And you didn't even get to say what you wanted to say. And here we are. So, yeah. Um, maybe maybe we'll just do those as one, like a part one and a part two for a whole week. It's just a two-hour long conversation, part one, part two. And there's our two podcasts. Yeah, yeah. But we're well, open to anything. We're flexible. That's what, yeah. that's what we're like. So we're going to talk a little bit today as we kind of, uh, and I promise you guys, we're going to, we're going to do the soil health podcast. We got to do a wrap up. There's one other guest we're trying to get on, um, that we haven't touched on that portion and, uh, that portion of soil health discussion a whole lot. Um, doing a disservice too, if we didn't discuss this aspect of soil health and that this component of it, so that there's a purpose for holding off. Yeah. And, and so it may be a couple more weeks before we finally get out of that one. I, but I, I find it crucial. Don't, don't worry. That one's not going to fall to the wayside. Um, we're going to get to talk all about soil health and hear Matt and I's um, thoughts on it in the near future. We've got a bunch of other topics coming up that are going to be really interesting and awesome. Um, but today is kind of a wrap up of where we've been and some key points that we've found um, that we haven't discussed on this podcast much in the past. So we're going to cover that tonight. Um, I was just recently in New York state, West New York, uh, for a few days. Um, Adam, Adam Keith in New York state. Yeah. What, what was your first experience like? A little bit like crocodile Dundee going to New York city. <laughs> Not that extreme, though. No, it really wasn't bad. I mean, first day I met with a uh, father-son, worked their property, a lot of inter- really interesting stuff, kind of the same. You know, I, one thing I pointed out uh, to, to these guys was, don't think that it's a Missouri, that I'm bringing things that I know work in Missouri to New York. Like, right. the way we're managing is different. Um, the principles are the same, but the way we're managing is different. If I did what I recommended up there, and I uh, utilize that down here, I would have a grown up, thicket, nasty mess on my hands down here that wouldn't be nearly as productive for, all, for wildlife as it is going to be for them based yeah. on climate, based on disturbance, based on deer pressure, based on limited resources. Um, so that's the thing I enjoy about our business is the principles stay the same, but when we go south, we do things differently. When we go north, we do things differently. When we're in the Midwest, we try to blend them all together. And yeah. uh, I, I've really, I, I, I value that. I put a high value on our, on our information that we send out because it is what we have done, what we know works, and what research and what we know based on research that has been get provided by universities um, through tax dollars, tax-funded research. And so for us, it's like, it's, it's very important that our information is, is uh, research-backed and, and expertise-based, I guess. And so for us, uh, when we went to New York, it was like, okay, things are a little bit different than back home, but we're going to get you exactly where you need to be to see the results. Yeah, and, and I had that conversation with a, with a potential client um, earlier this week on the, on the phone and uh, just kind of talk about your experiences, Adam, uh, kind of living and growing up in the Midwest, my experiences of growing up on the East Coast and, you know, just the ability to be able to combine those and feel really comfortable to, to work in areas from 
North Dakota down to Texas and, and everywhere east of that, you know, between those upbringings, between where we've been, let's say in the country and all the eco regions that those areas uh, do encompass, man, there, there's, there's not really a place that we're just say, Ooh, that's, that makes me really uncomfortable. I'm not willing to do that. Um, yeah. well, because a couple of consult requests coming out West, but it was like, I'm not really sure that I'm the guy or you're the guy for that job because it's so far West and the plant yeah. communities are drastically different. Even though I feel confident that you could drop me off anywhere and you give me a little bit of time and I'm going to learn the plants. I'm going to learn the non-natives. I'm going to figure out the best disturbance to create diversity. Um, but I it, don't it, feel confident going to Oregon and writing a plan for correct, correct. Roosevelt L. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. But that's, what's, what's fun is that with these principles of, of land management and natural resource management, man, it's the combination of, uh, of all those things coming together and the different emphasis on each region that, um, we tweak and, and tailor the information and delivery and recommendations for each of those regions. So yeah, New York was, was a definitely a cool fit. Um, I, I know did something kind of interesting up there. I did the first consult and two days later I did a consult with a whole crew of hmm. NDA people. Um, right. So I had 15 or so guys if, tracking along beside me. Interesting point is maybe the first 10 minutes of meeting all those guys, the guy, and one guy asked me with an accent like that. So where are you from? <laughs> and I laughed. I said, well, with an accent like that, where are you from? Um, there's a little bit of a language barrier. I say acorn, they say acorn. Um, I say Creek, they say crack. Um, so, you know, the fun stuff. Um, but it was a good time. Uh, ultimately, um, you could always ask me, and probably yourself, whenever you're going to a region of what you're going to expect. And I can probably get you really close to what I'm expecting. That's what I actually saw. It's like when you head east, you know, there's probably a better chance you're going to see more invasives. Um, and I saw a map today that was shared on social media that was kind of highlighting dense pockets. And it it's everything we, we already believe. You go east, you're going to run in more invasive species. Um, you go north and northeast, you're going to see a lot of closed canopy forests and a lot more invasives and limited disturbance. I mean, prescribed right. fire is not used in New York. So you're trying to look for disturbances that are still providing that benefit. Um, and ultimately, though, let's be honest, a maple forest um, a moist maple forest probably isn't the most conducive forest to burn like a hardwood forest of oaks here in, in Missouri. So right. as I told those guys, you're not really missing out on a whole lot because of your forest. Old fields would, would greatly benefit from it, but it's just one of the obstacles that we have to deal with. So, um, yeah, uh, closed canopy forest, lots of invasives scattered around limited disturbance, high deer density, shake it up. And that's what most of that landscape was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's the cool point uh, you, you said, you know, going into a region, um, we can get really close to what we can anticipate um, that we're going to encounter and see plant species, plant communities. Um, but it's, it's, let's just, let's just call that 80%. I'm going to anticipate 80% of of what i'm going to see and encounter on a given property when i either look at an aerial and i know that climate in that region but it's the the extra 20 percent that ensures us every single time that we don't go to a property or, or excuse me that we don't sit on a, a computer um or an aerial and and simply just will construct that management plan because we know that extra 20 percent is so critical and valuable to the remainder of impacting that 80% that we've got to be there to see it. We, we yeah. really got to, um, to make sure we know that property inside and out to, to give accurate recommendations on, on a given property. 
Um, and I will say that 20% oftentimes strongly dictates that, let's say that disturbance interval, um, that disturbance type, and as well as the phases in which you may attack a, a property itself. So if it is heavily uh, infested with invasives, we're not going straight into to timber thinning. We're gonna go at invasive species reduction and removal first and foremost, and then go in forward and, and do that timber thinning as that disturbance. So it just plays such a, such a critical role um, knowing properties, seeing properties, and then being able to identify plants that are present and should be present or not. And yeah. we kind of had that conversation, Adam, earlier. It was like, sometimes things just look out of place and you got to go and investigate them. Um, they're like, that's that plant right there, whether it's growth, growth structure or um, it's, it's leaf structure, that's out of place. That's non-native. Let's identify it and figure out what it is we're dealing with. What's the That's best right. plan? Yeah. Oh. And I, I was looking at my calendar ahead. Pretty much every consult I have, minus one in Kansas, is something north of me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll go back to New York later. I'll go to Minnesota. I'll go to North Dakota. I'll go to Iowa. Um, yep. I'll go to northern Missouri. And, uh, you know, there's a common theme with any time you go north where the work our workload or our, our work recommendation changes from what we're doing here. And, um, you know, that's an interesting point as we jump into some of the topics that we want to cover with this, uh, with some of our latest consults to reiterate. Um, one of those, the big ones is kind of a catchphrase buck beds, buck bedding, um, that we really run into. You see it a lot in the world of social media, even though I'm not on social media a whole lot anymore, uh, you can take a quick scan and probably see a couple of posts about finding quote buck beds. Um, and I want to, you know, we get hit up about that stuff a lot. A lot of that, um, the scouting aspect of trying to figure out what the deer are doing, where they're bedding, where they're feeding. You're constantly trying to chase, play cat and mouse. And I had this conversation with one of the guys on the, on the event yesterday. He goes, you know, everything you said was like, just hitting the nail on the head to me of that's what's occurring on my farm. That's what I've experienced on my farm. That's exactly how I feel in frustration of there's deer here on camera. They pass through at night, but I never really truly have a deer stick around. And I feel like I'm always just chasing my tail. And it really is like, that's, that's it. I mean, I've said it before on this podcast, so I'll say it again, but it's, it's almost the difference between hunting from a defensive standpoint where you're trying to figure out what the deer are doing. They're making the moves and you're trying to react based on their moves. When, Mm -hmm. when you lay out the property correctly and use different practices, you really start playing offensive. I'm making the deer do this. I'm suggesting they do this and I find the conditions, the right conditions to move in and attack based on everything I've laid out, all the work I've done, knowing that when the conditions get right and the way a deer's natural behavior is, I've got a really, really good chance of taking them down. So kind of that uh, offensive hunting versus defense is, is a huge thing. And so you tie that into the buck beds and I'll jump into that. And I know you got something to say. I was going to say, Management itself is obviously all about taking action and and taking action um, should always be not should be should be a proactive solution and not a reactive solution when you're working with the land and trying to get the most out of a property um, if if you're simply going off of what has already happened or or what the historical um, factors are in a property that dictate wildlife movements on it, you're strictly basing off of the past. And, and that's not management for forward thinking management because you're not looking at what's going to change and what's going to happen and then how deer or turkeys are going to react to that. And so we got to be thinking proactively in our management. I want the deer to do that, not well, they do this, and I don't want to discredit, you know, the history of, of the way some 
deer patterns may change or excuse me, the way some deer patterns may be. However, I don't want to rely on them always being like that because if they're always like that probably means I haven't managed the landscape at the intensity which it needs to be. Well, you think about trail cameras in the past, like not cellular cameras, but the cameras that you go and pull the card, all the information you're getting is old. Um, right. It could be just a few hours old, but the, the better the information is, is basically the newer it is. And if you have really fresh information on a trail camera card pull, there's a very good chance that through all your pulling of the cards, you probably bumped or disturbed the deer that you just saw on the camera. And that's why over the years, I've almost grown to say that I think trail cameras that aren't cellular are more of a negative effect than a positive on uh, on a farm. Because I see guys check them too often, not pay attention to the wind when they check them. They just go and, and check all of them. And ultimately, the information gained is all old. I think that, yeah, you can, you can see where patterns had developed, but they don't obviously anticipate what's going to happen. And I, and I, I think we've said this in the podcast and, uh, and not afraid to say it again, but I think that those types of trail camera images um, and when people rely heavily on that, you, let, let's just say this, there's, I'm picturing a graph, right? Increased usage of trail camera imaging or images um, you, you also have a decrease in woodsmanship skills. Like if you try and begin to rely solely on trail cameras for your scouting, um, you don't really have to use your brain for that. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so we really should be looking at other factors of food availability natively, and then what's added supplementally, um, and as well as what the, future weather is going to be and, and deer behavior in the next couple months. That's the kind of stuff that should be playing into how I'm going to hunt, not gut instincts and woodsmanship should outweigh trail cameras, the card pull type. Um, you know, it should outweigh them significantly because you should be, if you're running and now you flip that, if you're running cell cameras, you have really fresh information. It could be just a few hours old or it could be, you know, five minutes old. Uh, if you have that, you have the ability to start playing your gut and going, okay, well, he was there this afternoon headed towards a bedding area. So he's probably in that, or he was there this morning, but he was headed towards a, a bedding area. So he's probably bedded there middle of the day. So if I get in there this afternoon, I have the chance of harvesting them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, like we said, most of those card pulls, they're three to five days old and kind of you're kind of always behind that eight ball so i think when you begin thinking of management and you begin thinking of doing these types of practices that we talk about weekly you've got to be thinking ahead of the game you got to be thinking what's going to happen in the next season or two or three or four seasons from now well you know Adam, you and Chad are, are, are going through property overhaul right now and are staring yeah. another timber harvest in the face um, potentially this summer. And, and I'm sitting here uh, um, looking over a fresh new 35 acres outside the back door and saying, wow, this, um, this is going to drastically change in the next two months. Same with yours. I'm not going to, well, I don't, I don't have any experiences hunting here, but I wouldn't hunt the property now let's just say if it was season the same way i'm going to in two months when i know some of the work's going to be going to be done and you guys aren't going to hunt this fall the same way that you guys have hunted this property for the last let's say 10 years because it's totally different it's completely yeah. different and the deer are going to react to that and i think that sometimes people get so caught up in the well, they've always done this and I don't want that to change because that's what I know. But my gosh, the, the change is the fun part. And the change is if, if you have a management plan that outlines things specifically and strategically with access in mind, like, like the ones that we produce, then you should be over the moon excited to be able to change that. Yeah. Like it should be the whole goal, not, not to rely on what you've always known, but to, to completely 
sometimes change it if needed because your road system just doesn't allow you to access it or um, further enhance what it is you're already doing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um, I, we kind of got distracted on the, on the buck beds, but like I, I know that, jumping in the buck beds. I mean, that's kind of a, a correlation. I feel like I see a lot more people talking about buck beds in Northern climate than in the Southern client. And I don't think there's a coincidence I don't think that's just by coincidence. I think there's truly some hard evidence from our experience in traveling in Northern States versus Southern States. Obviously the growing season is different. What does that growing season, the much longer period of growing season in the South mean versus in the North? It means vegetation can grow a a lot thicker. It can be a lot more diverse and it can be a lot more, um, uh, unpressured. I think the winter has a hard, it does put a, a hard amount of pressure on vegetation, especially woody browse, uh, in the Northern climate versus Southern climate due to the months and months of snowfall and cold temperatures and just overall a loss of loss of, uh, of food. Um, and so buck beds, I can't believe we're actually talking buck beds. I think we've said it the, in the past, uh, buck beds that get brought up by us is usually in a kind of a joking matter. Now, it's not because we don't believe that you can find beds that are routinely used by bucks. It's just, I typically see it a lot in public lands where you can't really manipulate the habitat. But if I've got a guy who, a client of ours, let's just say, who's talking about locating buck beds on his farm, I'm just going to shoot it to our listeners straight and say, that tells me we have a major problem with quality cover that's secure because I don't want to find a buck just bedding in one spot on a routine basis because that's the safest place he's found. I want him to feel safe throughout much of the property. Yeah. I think, I think it's a combination of three things. I think it's quality, the security, and then the amount of that available, the quantity aspect of it. Um, because some of these areas that, that we have found, it's like, okay, yeah, that deer is routinely here. There, I would, I would quote them, air quote it and say, okay, that could be, or that's what I would say is a good cover, but it's a small, small pocket among a landscape of, of very poor cover. And so when we find this routine thing, it, it's a routine bedding. It's generally a small isolated pocket in this sea of horrible cover. And, and horrible. It's, it's routine because my gosh, there's no other option or there's no other option that offers that same security feature that that one specific spot um, will offer. I think of, think of it like this. Imagine a huge pasture <clears throat> that has one tree out in it. And got a a whole bunch of black Angus or cows that aren't really bred to take the heat. What are they going to do? They're going to go to, they're going to flock to that one shade tree and spend a drastic amount of time there. And you'll quickly see bare ground under it. And you'll think, wow, you know, that, that tree must really do something. And that's not the issue. The issue is that it is, that shade is so limited. The quality shade component is so limited that that's the only option they have. And, um, so I was in Iowa last week or two weeks ago. I don't know. I'll say this too. Or it's in an area that the pressure is so great that there is only very few secure areas where they are not being, um, bugged, bumped, uh, winds blowing routinely. It could be that combination as well. I think, I think of Northern States, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin beaver swamps kind of pull in a lot of bucks and, and, and overall just a lot of deer bedding. Um, and what do you think about beaver swamps? I think about lots of water yep. Tough and to a place that you and I don't really go walking through a lot. So if a deer can jump in there and find a high spot that's out of water, that's not going to have people bumping through it all the time or running them out of there or dogs come swimming by all the time, they're yep. going to do it over and over and over because that's the hand that we've forced them to play. And, uh, so when I was in Iowa last week, 
I found two spots, um, uh, a, a buckeye tree that had kind of leaned over with some limbs going straight out to the ground, and it was just bare ground um, underneath it where they've been actively using it throughout the spring, probably through the fall. There were some rubs around. I would have probably said, yes, this is a bed that a buck has been using based on what I saw. Now we walked another 60, 70 yards and I saw another grove, like just looking in it, you can see the vegetation's different. Matt right. and I had that conversation yesterday about how there's something about what, what draws us in. And I don't know how to say that how I find these on the properties that we visit. Um, but I'm just drawn to see something different. And so when I saw this patch of elderberries that had some thick um, native cool season grasses um, growing around it, I was like, there's something different about that. Let's go check it out. And you could see three or four different beds that have been used pretty regularly around that. And I, so I took it as probably a family group um, bedded in there. And I mean, yes, you could say, well, elderberry, that's the new bedding. That, that, that's where you're going to find good beds. But it doesn't matter what species it is. It's that structure. It could have been, it could have been silver maples that were three years old that were growing thick, high stem count. It doesn't a matter. Out of the silver maple just laid across the ground down in there. It still yeah. had a component of woody structure with the cool season grasses in among growing in among that woody structure. That was what was being utilized and sought after in those examples. It wasn't just the fact that it was a a native shrub species that typically grows in wetter soils. It was woody structure and the grasses. Yeah. And so then I jump up on a flight and I head to New York this week and, uh, or this past week. And, um, I get up there and I find an old field area, lots of goldenrod, um, scattered out through lots of shrubs. There was different, um, like arrowwood was out there. Uh, silky dogwood was out there. And there were scattered clumps of autumn olive, unfortunately, but it was a Not pretty, it was a pretty good. Yeah. Uh, well it was arrowwood viburnum was, uh, was the species, but, um, yeah. And in fact, it was the exact species that I planted in my yard for landscaping, um, okay. just a few weeks ago. So it was there. It was, it was, it was kind of cool to see the different growth structures of the shrubs. It's exactly why we promote diversity because, um, the arrowwood is very dense at the base and grows more of a straight pattern right. up while the dogwood kind of starts out dense, but kind of sprawls out and the umbrella with the silky, but, but the ver very vertical, not conical shape, but like very vertical column like structure yeah. out of the viburnum. Yeah. And so those two species were the dominating shrubs on that landscape. Unfortunately, I didn't find any red osier dogwood, which we love in that climate. Um, it's certainly in the area, but it seems like one that's so highly preferred and so really good for wet areas. You would think you would find it more common, but it's just, sure. I just didn't. But I saw an area out in this, out in this area, this old field, that it was a, uh, a dogwood that had kind of laid over. It just looked different. I don't know how to explain it. It just kind of, as soon as I saw it, my eyes hit it. I was like, I got to look at that closer because something's different. I walked over there and there's grape, uh, wild grape growing all over it. And I'm like, boy, that looks really good. And there's, there's clearly a browse line on it. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of looked, I'm like, wait a second. And I moved over to the other side and I pulled the clients with me. And you could almost, you, well, not almost, you peel back um, the grapevine from just this past month's growth. And you could see this almost cave-like structure or cave-like area where deer had bedded in there a lot, probably this past fall and winter. Um, not so much right now, likely due to the amount of growth that had happened. Um, but it was just an amazing bed, uh, very limited area. I mean, you couldn't find that type of structure throughout that landscape um, commonly occurring. And it yeah. was like, okay, look guys, this is quality cover, quality structure and deer are really keyed on in on it. And we walked another 20 yards and there was kind of that polka dotted, a couple of shrubs, the diverse shrubs. We had the viburnums, we had the, the dogwoods, but they were in a, they were dense, but not so dense that they couldn't penetrate it and get through it. 
and I stepped in there and there was a couple of beds and it was like, well, there you have it. You have this structure that's limited throughout much of this landscape and the deer are forced to use it on a regular basis. And so that kind of brought up the whole conversation that I wanted to have on this podcast about buck beds or more importantly, routinely used beds. And I'm not talking about bedding areas. I'm talking about where a deer lays in almost the exact same spot day after day after day. I'm not saying it's always a bad thing, but if it's always occurring on your farm, um, I would try to do something to give them more options so that you could probably hold more deer, but ultimately just make the deer feel more comfortable knowing that there's an adequate amount of cover uh, throughout the farm. Yeah, I, I think to me the, there's a there's a light bulb that that should probably go off, and and the question that you should be asking yourself if you find that same type of um, situation you found yourself in is not how do I hunt this, but the question then becomes how do I replicate more of this plant community on the property because what we often talk about on the podcast is how some of the best hunting farms have them have the the most cover offered on them and and are the most secure and so the question isn't like oh i'm just going to hunt this buck bed or this bed because that's where they're choosing to be it's okay take this observe it replicate it create it every or not everywhere necessarily but in a lot of places on the property and offer the same type of situation at a higher quantity and then i'm going to hold more deer and it can still be consistent but you've got to be able to think of creating this um and that that kind of goes back to the earlier conversation of being proactive and not just reactive to oh deer choosing to be here let me let me hang a stand or hang a camera and figure out who it is or what it is it's it's take note create more and in a spatial manner that makes sense i think you had mentioned to me pre-show that that area really wasn't that far from maybe a, a commonly used trail that they had uh maybe drive on or walk on and it's like no i i don't necessarily want deer right there all the time but a deer had been choosing to to be there and bed there because it did offer cover and probably gave them, let's say, awareness or heads up that if there was disturbance or intrusion on the property, they could probably see it coming. It was more one of those areas that you throw your scent across as you walk in because you're like, there's no deer out there. So you just kind of chalk it up as five acres that eh, deer don't utilize it. I don't hunt there. I'll just let my scent drift across it as I'm walking in. And now it's like, well, we got to change our approach uh-huh. and we got to slip in and be a lot more conservative because one thing that's commonly occurring in Northern States um, is smaller parcels. So right. less right. than a hundred acres, you know, mm-hmm. maximize each and every acre because you're, you're sharing a deer herd, you're sharing hitless bucks with your neighbors. And so, we're all competitive and we're trying to improve our chances of harvesting a mature buck. So the more time he spends on our property, the better, the better chances I have at harvesting rather than my neighbor. And so those guys are like, Oh, okay. I see this. And I'm like, now you, we need to take that and chalk it up as we can't let this place go un uh, go ignored from now on. We have to kind of assume that there's going to be deer bedded over there. Now, the way I'm going to set it up, there's not going to be any more throwing your scent across it, but um, I'm, I'm certainly going to do some things to improve bedding around in a bigger area. So hopefully he can hold more deer and have a better idea of where they're bedding rather than the scattered effect of the occasional bed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, again, <laughs> it, it's a, it's a cool thing to note and observe while, while seeing it but and, and let's say maybe build around but it's not something that you want to just throw all your chips at and say well this is uh this is everything the property can offer and and move on about your day it's it's let's capitalize on what we're seeing here and observing the way deer wanting to utilize the landscape let's just further enhance it to make it look 
more like that or offer more of that type of structure. Um, One thing too, that, you know, as we kind of pivot out of buck beds, I'd like to mention is um, when it, since we're talking about bedding in particular and designing bedding is um, I, I got asked the question a lot while I was up there about the distance of, okay, uh, there's two things that come up with bedding is what percentage of the property needs to be bedding. What pers- what's the distance I need to have between each bedding area or bedding area to food plots. And it's, it's one of those classic examples that you'll almost always get out of researchers that when you ask professors and, and grad students of like, what about this? And they always say, well, it kind of always depends. And you can't just put a, you need X amount of percent of clover on your farm. You need X amount of soybeans. You need X amount of, of cover uh, bedding areas. You need X amount of hinge cut areas. You need X amount, because every property is different. Every region is different. Every deer herd is different. Every deer is different. Um, every hunter's di- different. And so what you really try to do is just look at the distance of a property and say, okay, well, this one, you know, once we've established access, if if the property is 300 acres and it's really only set up to have four bedding areas, okay, that's fine. As long as we can access, get on the downwind side, not blow out the other ones, not let our scent drift across the other ones, that may be only four for 300 acres. Then you might go to a 90 acre parcel and say, you know, actually, I think we can get six of them in here because the access is phenomenal. And the way it sets up is it works really well to have six areas that we can improve uh, cover. And so I hate, I hate really talking about distance between this one and that one when the terrain's different, everything's different. There's so many variables. The, the two variables to me that, that totally dictate how many or how large they can be. Um, and, and to me, it's not necessarily what trees are growing there or what stage or, or whatnot, because anything can be cut, but it is totally heavily weighted on access and topography. Those two things, in my opinion, trump a lot of the other variables that someone could throw out when, it, when, when we're talking about distinctly creating distinct bedding areas. Yeah, that that right there is 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 huge. If you can't access it, um, if you can't, when I say access, I mean in two ways. Like you mentioned, getting on the downwind side of it, or getting around it. Like yeah. we, we, you got to have the security aspect into into bedding location. So if you can't move around the property or throughout the property cleanly, then it becomes very difficult to have that secure quality bedding on a property yeah. you may have an area of young forest regeneration that just doesn't really hold that many deer because you can't get around it or you're on the property too often um yeah. not, not say that's not bad but it, it's not going to serve its function um like an area that is secure that has the same type of cover yeah and and the other thing like really brought this conversation up is with my little workshop field day that we did um yesterday uh working with all these different guys is um the property kind of let's just say it was more of a rectangle shape and on the eastern side of that had a food plot a little ways behind the house and it set on a basically right smack dab in the middle of that rectangle north and south and so there was 200 and some uh yards between the food plot and the and the uh and the boundary line and I talked about needing to add bedding to that so we can bring deer closer to those food plots or to that food plot. And they asked the question, well, don't we need to have a little bit of space um, because it's only going to be does that bed there. And I said, I'll ask you this question. Do you believe that mature bucks have a, a certain amount of steps that they have to make between food plot or feeding areas and where they want to bed? Or do you feel like, it's a certain amount of steps because they know they have there's secure cover somewhere that they're trying to get to. And so when I asked him that, I was like, well, that's a good question because I, I would say it's probably more driven on secure cover. So I'm like, even if it's only a hundred yards over there, I feel based on my experience and what I've noticed about deer in quality cover on my own farm, thinking of a sticker eight buck that you and I were in a tree stand with, 
yeah. wasn't far from the food plot, but he was bedded down there and down the slope, um, just off food plot because that was the best cover in the neighborhood. Yeah. And so I looked at it and said, if we're going on, it has to be a certain amount of distance. There's not going to be any bedding put on this side of the farm. And we have basically how many acres that is just wasted now. Uh, it doesn't have quality covers, doesn't have quality forage. It's just tax dollars that you're paying each and every year. Um, and so <laughs> what do you think happened? They're putting in a bedding cut. Well, here's, here's the other thing. One of the other situations that you brought up was, um, okay, there's a food plot and all you're getting is, is pictures of deer at, at dark or, or during the night. If, if you don't have bedding close by, that food plot is still going to be the same situation that they were complaining about earlier. A lot of, a lot of what we see is that distance is too far or too great. Um, the deer traveling whether it's off the property um, and getting to a food source because it's 300, 400, 500, 600 yards that they have to go to. And so if I want to solve that, I'm not, I'm not considering whether a buck or a doe is going to bed there. All I'm considering is what cover can I create? How do I do that? And then I'm going to let the deer figure it out for themselves and I'm going to keep it secure. I'm not going to pressure it. And so then if I know I've created quality cover and it's secure, any deer in their right mind, whether they have antlers on their head or not, is going to be bedded there because it's secure and it's offering good cover. No matter the distance from the food plot. To me, it's only going to increase your opportunity of daylight success if that food plot and that bedding area are both hunted and respected from a, from a security aspect. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, that's where, you know, improving the cover, improving the overall bedding and, and security on a farm can be huge, no matter the distance between that and a food plot, no matter the size, no matter the fact that you had buck beds on the place before. I don't, we're not looking to have just buck beds. We're looking to have lots of bedding, lots of security um, spread out. So ultimately, if there's receptive does, there's probably nice bucks. If there's um, quality secure cover, there's probably nice bucks because they're seeking out the best area in the neighborhood that they can find that. So all that being said is, is really just about um, maximizing each and every acre to where it either provides cover, it provides food, or in a lot of instances, it provides both. We just have to know what to do and where to put it. Yeah, totally. And, and, and then, the other aspect is you have to do it. You, you just have to do it. Um, you have to go out there and manipulate it. Um, That's right. And man, so, we've, this podcast has gone on so long. I thought we were going to do 30 minutes and here we are <laughs> on almost an hour. Um, and so we'll build on this one even more because yeah. it's an interesting thing as we go north. It's just like, man, there's just so much in the, in the northern states that can be improved. Um, I, I, yeah, one, one of the com comments you mentioned earlier is, and this is, this is commonly seen up there and we run into it is don't be confused by high, higher deer densities with quality habitat. Don't, don't be confused by numbers of deer and thinking that, oh, well, I'm, I've got what they need. Things can certainly be improved. Yeah. even even on let's just say we got 50 acres 450 or 4,000 acres if you have a higher deer density honestly we're probably looking at reducing deer numbers while improving habitat all at the same time but mm -hmm. don't just don't be confused by number of deer and think quality habitat um because that's that's oh. not the, what some of the most some of the most the highest deer per square mile values that I've worked in and, and had to manage in and around, this is actually before land legacy uh, is in the state of Maryland, just obnoxiously high deer densities and extremely poor quality um, cover and very poor, um, I could say composition of native plants and they were still making it and they were doing exceptionally well when it comes to reproduction 
but the quality of deer wasn't all that great. They were just getting by. Predators was a, there's very few of them. Let's say coyotes had barely moved into the range and all these other factors. However, relatively poor, poor habitat and extremely high deer numbers. Yeah. Well, man, it's after 10 o'clock here. So we wrap up another podcast. Um, I'm hopeful that, you know, I like the Northern States. Um, a guy asked me while I was over there if, what kind of regions I liked. And I said, I like the North. I hate to sound arrogant, but in the North, it's fairly easy to make a big change pretty quickly. Um, well, I was, I was going to say it in a, a lot of farms. I was, I was, I was going to say it, that it's, it's a very underutilized landscape when it comes to wildlife, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's I, a lot that can be done. When I left there, I think each and every guy that would, that had joined was like, I can't wait to start working because if it's yeah. going to change as quickly as you're saying, then my hunting season I just came out of is the last time that I'm going to have to endure uh, a season like that. You make it sound relatively easy. And I'm like, I don't want to make something sound relatively easy, but yeah, it is pretty easy in this. And if your woods look like this, if your farm looks like this to make some pretty simple changes and poof, hunting has changed, not just for next year, but years to come. And you can see two and 300 yards across hundreds and hundreds of acres and your neighbors it's very easy to stand out in that very easy yeah. so I, yeah. i'm excited to to kind of hopefully um catch up with those guys um and and years to come and see what kind of improvements that they've made up there from that field day and that's that's the cool thing consultation or time spent in the field there's a or, or just podcast videos social media posts there's always something that we can be learning um and applying on on your given property so so we have appreciate everyone tuning in to this podcast there'll be more next week i know we've got some really good podcast ideas that we've been tossing around in our brains and just kind of a matter of ironing them out and um getting those things planned out for you guys so be sure to stick around and join us in the coming weeks that's right guys thanks for joining us once again um and we'll catch you next week We'll see you guys. Yep.